0: Over the past several weeks, we have been in a sermon series called God Is, and we have been looking at the, uh, some of the main attributes, certainly not all the main attributes, but some of the main attributes of God. Uh, we've talked about how God is loving, how God is self-sufficient, how He's uh, generous, how He's good, how He's holy, and how He is glorious. And we still have a couple to cover Uh, But today, I want to look at the topic of God is Wisdom. Now, for this message, I chose to make a subtle but, I think, important change. Originally, this message was going to be called God is Wise, and in keeping with the previous messages, um, God is loving, God is good, God is holy, and He is all of those things, But when I got to this topic, specifically, I felt like saying that God is wise just didn't cut it. Because when you say someone is wise, it sounds like we're saying God makes good choices. Well, of course he makes good choices, but saying God is wise, I felt like was an understatement. Uh, He is the very embodiment of wisdom. Because he knows everything in the past and the present and the future, even the hearts, even what is in the hearts and the minds of every person on the planet, he is able to chart a course of action for us that is wise. He not only has all knowledge, but he has perfect knowledge and understanding in how to use that knowledge in wise and proper ways. But God's wisdom is not always what you would expect it to be. Often, it's the opposite of what you would expect. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 27, and we'll read through verse 31. It says, But God chose the foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low. And despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul is trying to help the church in Corinth understand how God operates. He specifically selects the absurd of the world to confuse and confound those who think they're experts. If you think back on various Bible stories, you'll see this principle over and over and over again. God used Noah, the farmer, to build the biggest ship the ancient world had ever seen. Probably the only ship the ancient world had ever seen. He used an elderly couple to have a baby. Who's standing in that line? <clears throat> he used Moses the stutterer to be his spokesperson to Pharaoh. He used Joshua to march around a city seven times and shout that made the walls crumble to the ground. Did that make any sense? They didn't have uh, trebuchet and catapults and battering rams to knock down the walls of Jericho. They only used their voices. He used Gideon's army of 300 to defeat 120,000 Midianites. He used a young shepherd boy who nobody thought anything of to defeat a giant that nobody in the Israelite army would come anywhere near. He used fishermen and tax collectors, a woman that Jesus drove seven demons out of, a five-time divorced Samaritan woman, and so many others that no one would have chosen in that culture to take his message to the ends of the earth. God used Paul, a persecutor of the Christian faith, to become the greatest defender of the Christian faith in the first century. Yet God did all of those things because God is the embodiment of wisdom. To understand wisdom properly, we have to start at the beginning. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. So to understand wisdom, we have to first notice that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. That's your first blank if you're using your notes. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Now when we hear the term, the fear of the Lord, we often think that it refers to reverence, respect, and awe. And yes, it definitely includes that. But this Hebrew word for fear also includes the negative aspects of fear as well. When Israel stood at the, at Mount Sinai and they agreed to live in covenant with God, the mountains started smoking. Flashes of lightning lit up the sky. Thunder shook the ground where they were standing and they were filled with fear. They were so afraid, they retreated from the mountain to create distance between them and God. And they told Moses, they said, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak directly to us or we'll die. How would you say something like that? Well, you would say it if you're really afraid. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 18, the word used to describe their fear is a word that means shaking, quivering, trembling. This is not just reverence and respect. This was actual, genuine fear. So this fear, this, tr- uh, this trembling, shaking, this was legit fear that they were experiencing. Um, Moses told them that God was demonstrating his awesome power and presence to strike fear in the hearts of them so they wouldn't sin against him. There are Christians today that believe you can be a follower of Jesus Christ and you can live however you want and God won't punish you for it. And they do that because they don't have an understanding of the fear of the Lord. Now, this is not just an obscure Old Testament example. In Acts chapter 5, a husband and wife, I've, I've referred to it when we were uh, in the message, God is holy, husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira. They sold property, they lied about how much they were giving to the Lord, and God struck them dead over what they wrote on their tithing envelope. We'll take up the offering in a little bit. Notice what God says, no, I'm sorry, notice what Luke said in Acts 5.11. It says, after this incident, incident, and great fear came upon who? The whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now, great fear is a great phrase in Greek, megas phobos, megas phobos. It's not just respect and reverence and awe. It was mega fear. Great fear. And it came upon not the outsiders. It came upon the whole church. Oh, man, I better make sure I'm, I'm writing the correct thing on this tithing envelope now. Why is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? Well, because the Almighty... Understand, the Almighty can do whatever He wants, when He wants, to whom He wants. He holds our lives in His hands. He can use us for His purposes, whatever they may be. And though God is loving and gracious and kind, He also knows every possible outcome to every, possible, uh, every possibility, and He sets us on a course for the right situation. In his wisdom, he guides our paths. And if we're wise, we'll follow him. We obviously should have respect and reverence and awe for God at the very least. But we should also remember that if we take his presence for granted, his holiness, his righteousness, he is well within his rights to do to us, to execute judgment as he did. To Aaron's sons in Leviticus 10, Eli's sons in 1 Samuel 2, and Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. To all those who approach me, I will be made holy. And we have to have wisdom when it comes to approaching the Lord. When we fear God, we fear nothing else. Jesus even told his disciples in Matthew 10 28, to fear those. Uh, I'm sorry, not to fear those who had the power to kill them, but to fear the one who had the power to destroy both soul and body in hell. So here Jesus is telling us, you need to have a healthy fear of the Lord. Having a healthy understanding of the fear of the Lord is incredibly important, especially to these people because they were facing persecution and, and eventual martyrdom. Twice the Psalms remind us that when we put our trust in the Lord, the question comes back, what can man do to me? We don't need to fear others, but ensure that we fear the Lord. That's where wisdom begins. Going back to Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians about God using foolish things to confuse and confound the wise, what are some of the ways that the Bible demonstrates that? Thank you for asking. Number one, wisdom shows his strength through our weakness. Wisdom shows his strength through our weakness. We see this principle throughout the Bible. Story after story shows the people considered least likely to succeed actually were chosen by God and given great success. This principle is firmly illustrated in the example I gave you just a minute ago. Gideon leading 300 men against Midian's massive 120,000-man army. On paper, that makes no sense whatsoever. But when men win the battle, God doesn't get the glory. So God set it up so that these men would have a story of a lifetime and would rightly give honor and glory to God for winning the battle. God didn't need 120,000 Israelites to go up 120,000 Midianites. He only needed 300 obedient and fearless men who would trust God for their deliverance. Now, when we talk about this huge disparity between numbers, it reminds us of when King David numbered the people. And God punished King David for numbering the people. He wanted to know how many fighting men he had in all of Israel. And God considered that a sin. Now, why would God consider that a sin? Moses did it. Samuel did it. It wasn't a sin for Moses and Samuel to do it, but it was a sin for David. And so we have to assume that it was because it wasn't the act that was sinful. It was the motivation behind the act. You see, when you've got an army, 10,000 men strong, you're willing to pick a fight with smaller armies because you're confident that you'll win. But when you're outnumbered dramatically, uh, you would tend to shy away from conflicts like that. You would be trusting in your strength instead of trusting in the Lord. And so when the Lord asks you to go up against a much bigger foe, you start calculating all the losses that you'll face and that you might not even win. But when your trust is in the Lord, it doesn't matter how big of a foe that you face. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven, he says, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And Paul comes back to the same concept, but personalizes it in 2 Corinthians 12.10. He says, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How could Paul make a statement like that? It doesn't make any sense. If you go back a couple of verses, you see that Paul was experiencing what he called a thorn in the flesh, which he called a messenger of Satan that harassed him to keep his ego at bay. And while we don't know specifically what this thorn in the flesh was, it would make sense that. The one thing the enemy would attack Paul on was his involvement on the martyrdom of Stephen. Because Paul was standing there executing an arrest warrant for all the Christians so they could be rounded up and killed. And Paul was there then, of course, was called Saul. He was holding the coats of the men who stoned Stephen. If anybody felt unworthy to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, it would be a man who went out of his way to hunt the Christians down and martyr them for their faith to watch Stephen be killed. Paul asked God three times to remove this demonic attack, this constant nagging, this constant uh, spiritual attack that Paul was dealing with. But God's response. 2 Corinthians 12:9 was this But he said to me My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness Through God's wisdom his power is perfected in our weakness When we are weak we see his strength on full display Number 2 Wisdom shows The more we give, the more we receive. Now, the topic of giving and generosity is throughout the Bible. Taking care of the less fortunate uh, than you, the orphans, the widows, the immigrants, the needies. This is something, a topic that spans both Testaments. Only in God's economy will giving generously result in receiving more. That doesn't make any sense. If I give you $100, I am now less $100. But in God's economy, it doesn't work that way. I've repeatedly have God ask me to give generously, sometimes giving all that I had, and then to see how God used all that seed, that gift as, as a seed for harvest. I've given away money, guitars, vehicles, whatever God told me to give away, and I've watched how God created a miracle in my own life through that, dis, uh, through that obedience. And not only is it more blessed to give than receive, as it is stated in Acts 20, 35, but it's something that God uses to continually bless us. Yes, it feels good to give and be generous, but it's also a test of our obedience and it's an opportunity for God to be generous to us. Jesus reminded us that the measure of generosity we have towards others is the measure that God will have towards us. Remember that. Jesus said in Luke six thirty eight, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. I heard my parents quote this verse so many times. Given it will be given unto you. Press down, shake together, running over. And I heard it so much, and I had no concept of what that meant. And then one day, I came across an idea. And, and some of you have seen this illustration before. But for the sake of those who have not seen it, the Bible says that... Give and it will be given to you. The same measure. So let's just say we're going to use Tocitos uh, bite-sized chips for this illustration. So this is the measure that I'm going to give to God. This is my offering to the Lord. Maybe this is all I have. And so I give to the Lord my offering. All right? This is my offering to the Lord. And so when he gives back to me, what does he use? The same measure. But when he gives back to me, what does he do? Now, we're not, we're not in the same measure anymore because now we're, it's less, right? So what does that mean? We've got to get to the same measure. That was the promise of God. So we've got to get back up to the same measure. Again, what does it say? Press it down. And then shake it together. That means it can settle. More can go in. We might make this whole bag fit into this measuring cup. What didn't somebody bring queso? I know I'm not wearing gloves. We we'll bake it. All right, so we're still we got it we got to get it all in the measure and God says, "All right, come on. Press it down. Shake it together. Keep going. Keep going. Because not only is it pressed down, shaken together, but it's also running over. We have managed to get This entire bag of chips, did we have have the whole bag of chips in there the first time when I gave to God? But it was the same measure. And so when God gives back to us, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, our cleaning crew is going to have a field day with me this week. This is the economy of God. This is a great illustration so that you can understand that when God gives to us, it's the same measure. I didn't go get a bigger or smaller measuring cup. It's the same measuring cup, but it was pressed down, shaken together until it is running over. Now, would you all agree that what is in this cup is dramatically more than what I gave to God? But it's the same measure. This is how God's economy works. Wisdom shows us that the more we... Give, the more we receive. Number three. Wisdom tells us we must lose our life to save it. We must lose our life to save it. Now, this is another paradox in the Bible. It makes no rational sense that losing something helps you find it. Losing your keys doesn't help you find them. The fact that your keys are lost means that you cannot find them. And you're yelling at everyone in the house, where did you put my keys? I know I had them last, but where did you put them? Jesus, as he did throughout the Sermon on the Mount, takes something that makes no sense, and yet somehow, through his wisdom, it makes perfect sense. Jesus is quoted in Matthew, Mark, and Luke saying the same thing but with slight variations in the phrasing. We'll look at Luke 9, 24, uh, Luke's version where it says Jesus is saying, For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. If your goal, if your purpose is to preserve and protect everything you have in this life, You've become a slave to those things. If you're obsessed with how your stocks and your 401k portfolio are doing, you have enslaved yourself to that. You're spending your time trying to save your life, your status, and your possessions, but according to Jesus, you're actually losing your life in the process. The word lose here in in Luke 9.24, it appears twice. In this verse, it's the same Greek word both times, and it has the primary uh, meaning of destroy. We think that Jesus wants us to actively inconvenience ourselves for the gospel and that that counts as losing our life. Or we might think, okay, God, I'll think of myself less often. I'll I'll let others go in front of me in line because I'm magnanimous. I'll feed some hungry people. I'll cut out one latte a week and give that money to missions. But in my opinion, that is not in the same ballpark. If we were to translate this phrase out of the Greek literally, it would be this. For whoever wishes to save his soul, to be whole and fulfilled, would destroy it. But whoever destroys his soul for my sake, because of me, will save it. He will be whole and fulfilled. Now, how does this work? How do you destroy your soul? Now, in a good way. Well, Paul wrote this long list of accomplishments, long list of accolades and credentials in Philippians chapter 3. He was the most qualified to lead, the most studious and educated when it came to all the other apostles. He was zealous for Christ, and at this point in his ministry, he's imprisoned. Philippians is what, what's called a prison epistle. He has suffered and sacrificed for the cause of the gospel. He has a tremendous opportunity to brag. Yet he wrote one of the most powerful paragraphs in the New Testament on this very issue. Philippians 3, 7 through 11. For whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes from faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And may share in his sufferings. Becoming like him in death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. If you want to save your life, first you must lose it. You must allow your old self to be laid upon the altar like a living sacrifice. As I've said before, you know the biggest problem with the living sacrifice? It likes to crawl off the altar. You put a living goat, living sheep on the altar and say, sit, stay. Like, no, especially if they know what's coming. We are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, but living sacrifices don't like to stay on the altar. You must let God remove your old self. Let him tear out the old way of thinking, the old way of acting, the old way of uh, uh, talking. You must let God destroy the old ways in you, so that, you can, so that he can give you what you could never give yourself, resurrection life. Number four, wisdom shows we are yoked, which makes us free. Now, oxen were connected together through a large piece of wood it's a large wooden beam with two round oval holes that would fit the oxen's head through. And so this would connect two oxen together in a yoke. This is how the farmer would pull them along the field to plow it. It was symbolic. This yoke in the Bible was symbolic of the restrictions and the requirements placed upon the uh, rabbi's disciples, every rabbi had their own yoke, their list of what their disciples could and could not do. And some rabbis had a very heavy yoke filled with thousands of detailed things that restricted their behavior. The goal of the yoke was to obey the law and to get as close to God's original intention as possible. Yet Jesus gave a startling statement to his disciples. Here is the Son of God who wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger on Mount Sinai. Surely he would would, uh, produce and provide the heaviest yoke of all, the strictest teaching to his disciples. And yet, another wisdom paradox from God. Yes, we must be connected to him and maintain that relationship with him, but his yoke is the opposite of what we would expect. Matthew chapter 10, verses 28 through 30, Jesus said, come to me, all of you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, not work. Rest. Take my yoke upon me and uh, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus did not give them what they were expecting, He gave them the opposite of what they were expecting. They didn't need a heavier burden. They needed a lighter one. They didn't need more rules for conduct. What they needed was a spiritual heart transplant. If they had a new heart, if they had a heart like his, then they would do the right things because they would be in tune with him. Finally, number five, wisdom shows leadership begins with serving others. Leadership begins with serving others. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples were making their way to Capernaum, where many of them were from. And along the way, a discussion arose as to who was the greatest. Now, that was going to be fun. A group of men and women walking along following Jesus, and an argument starts about which one of them is Jesus' favorite. Which one of you, which one of us is the best disciple? Which one of us is the greatest? Well, Jesus chose me first, so I rest my case. Well, wait a minute. Jesus called me by name. He didn't even know what your name was. He probably did. Well, uh, okay, that's true, but Jesus called me the rock. And so that's better than what he has been calling all of you. Jesus knew the conversation was playing out, and, and he just let it play out. He, he just let them have their conversation. He knew what was going on. But then they, took, they, they stopped. And when he confronted them about it, he just said, hey, what were you guys talking about on the road? You could hear crickets. They felt really awkward and probably felt pretty dumb at having this conversation because you realize how incredibly unimportant it really is. Out of everybody that is there, Jesus is clearly the greatest. And you're having an argument in the presence of God's son as to where you sit in the pecking order. And Jesus, instead of chastising them, he said in Mark 9:35, "If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all." If you want to be the chief of all, You have to be the lowest of all, the servant of all. In God's kingdom, if leaders aren't serving others and they don't have a servant's heart, they're not really leaders. We remember the moment in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples, the last supper, this last Passover meal that he shares with these disciples. And what do you find Jesus doing? He took the position of a servant and he washed their feet. The most humbling thing you could ever do to someone is to wash their feet. And he did that. The Son of God, the God of all creation, is washing the feet of his disciples to show them this is how you lead. You lead by serving others. Worship team, come on up. Would you please stand with me this morning? You might need God's wisdom. You might be facing a situation that is beyond your control. You might think you know how to handle it, but you may not be sure. Or you may have absolutely no idea what to do at all. God's wisdom is so great, so vast, so complete, that it is one of his main attributes. He doesn't just have wisdom. He is wisdom. He is the embodiment of. Of wisdom, The Spirit of the Lord is the Spirit of wisdom. So when we need uh, wisdom when facing a situation, we are instructed to do what James tells us to do. In James 1, 2, and 5, he wrote this. He said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Do we do that? Do we count it all as joy? <clears throat> no, we don't. Let me tell you something. Occasionally, occasionally, I get a letter from the IRS. And it's not a bad letter, but I don't know it's not a bad letter until I open it up. And i got to be honest with you. Joy is the last thing I'm thinking of in that moment. I do not count it all joy to receive written correspondence from the Internal Revenue Service, knowing that they still have not processed my tax return that I filed two months ago, it gives me a little bit of apprehension. So I turn to James and say, James, tell me what I should do. And James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And here is what we want to focus on. As we close this morning, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. This means that God wants you to ask for his help. He doesn't want you to mess up so he can come in and rescue you time and again. He actually wants you uh, to reach out for help when you need it. He, when he gives wisdom, also he gives it generously. And he doesn't make you feel bad for asking for it. He wants you to know his mind and do his will. In order for that to happen, you must have God's wisdom. In God's wisdom, he brings water from a rock and dry ground appearing on the floor of a seabed. In God's wisdom, he gives a newborn to an elderly couple and a rainbow to remind us of his faithfulness. In God's wisdom, he makes a stutterer, the national spokesman, and a persecutor of the faith into a defender of the faith. In God's wisdom, strength is found in weakness. Blessings are found in generous giving. Life fulfillment is found in being last place people. Being yoked makes us free and leading by serving others. When you find yourself in a situation needing God's wisdom, trust that He is a way maker. Even when you don't see anything is happening, even when you see no evidence that God is on the move, trust God is on the move. Wisdom is trusting the invisible God to do the impossible in your life worship with us this morning and then we'll close in prayer thank you lord he is faithful god has such great wisdom that he can pour out upon us that he can guide us with his spirit to places that we may never have gone ourselves but in god's wisdom and god's economy He works all things together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. He takes those things, those people that are least likely likely to succeed, and he does great things through them because they yield themselves to him. I want to challenge you today. Yield your life to him in every way, in every aspect, every area of your life. Yield to him. And see what He'll do through you. Your, your ministry is not over. Your, your time is not over. You're not, you're not riding off into the sunset. God still has purposes and plans. And uh, destiny and ministry that He can use through you. Don't check out. Keep pushing forward. Keep pursuing. Keep praying. If you can't do, you can Pray. You can ask God to do great things through you, through your prayers. There are lots of folks that are in church today and have a relationship with Jesus Christ today because of a praying parent, a praying grandparent, a praying great-grandparent. They didn't just check out when they, when they did their time and, and worked and retired. They got busy and kept working for the Lord, and you can continue doing that as well. To ask the Lord... What what are you facing? What are you up against? What is in your path? What obstacles in your path? And then let God show you His wisdom. Let Him show you His wisdom. Father, we thank You.